0: Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that our Savior has um, proven himself in so many ways worthy. And one of the things that he did that we should never forget is that he was willing to go to his death for us. We talk about his precious blood, but his body had to be broken so he could get to the cross. And when he was on the cross, even though he could easily have walked away from that entire experience for our sake, He kept going, and he held on. And his faithfulness is beyond our comprehension. And he never will let go of us. And so we just thank you for that. We thank you for the assurance that we have. We thank you that in following him, we are walking with someone who has proven himself to be not only the Son of God, but the Son of Man, our coming King. And we just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is a story... Uh, about a young man who wanted to get a, um, uh, ask this girl out to the prom. That, that was the thing. He wanted to ask this girl out for the prom, and she was a very, very popular girl. And, um, and so she had kind of like a line set up. She was at a table, and there were, there were like 20 guys in this line, and, he, and, and they, they like had to present their resume. And so he got in the line at the end with all of his paperwork in hand, and he waited hours. And finally he got up, and she looked over his paperwork, and she said, you'll do. And, I mean, after that long wait, he was so relieved. And then she gave him a list of things that he would have to do. And, you know, uh, apparently in his eyes, she was worth it. And so he went out, and the first thing was he had to get a uh, a limo from this particular company. And when he got there, of course, you know, during prom time, everybody is doing that. And so he stood for hours at the limousine place. But when he got up there, he was able to get the limo that he needed. And then uh, there were the flowers, and he stood for hours in line at the, the florist trying to get her the right corsage and everything. And uh, the big day came, and he picked her up uh, with the limousine, put the corsage on her. They drove to where the prom was, but wouldn't you know it, there was a huge line to get in. And they waited in that line, and he kind of tried to amuse her and entertain her, and they got in, and they sat down at the table. And the first thing she says to him, she says, Would you go get me a a cup of punch. So he thought, being the gentleman that he was, he would go get the cup of of punch and he went over to the table and he was surprised that there was no (laughs) punchline. Now the reason I tell that awful story (laughs) is because a lot of times when people look at Christianity, they look at this as a life without a punchline. You know, I mean, you follow this strict set of rules your entire life. And, you know, somewhere along the line, you might get the idea that something good is going to happen. And you don't exactly know what it is. And you get, I guess you get to the end of your life and you die. And it's like, so where was the punchline in all of this? I mean, what was this thing that we were looking for and waiting for? It seemed like I lived my life like everybody else. And I, I owned a Honda and then I owned a Ford. And, you know, and I moved to this state and then I moved to that state. And so what was going on here? And what we're going to be talking about today is the punchline, the reason that we're doing this, and it has to do not with being religious, it has to do with following our Savior um, and living closely with our Savior. It's sort of like, you know, the, the movie Karate Kid, right, when Mr. Miyagi takes Daniel on. The first thing he says to him is, you know, karate yes or karate no. Karate a little bit. And I think for a lot of believers, the idea is we don't want to invest in this thing wholly. And it's nice to have the fringe benefits. But the reality is that you get everything from it if you invest completely in following the Lord. And so the Lord at this point is orienting his disciples. He is not telling them everything they need to know. He has called twelve, who he named apostles, to be with him, to be sent out to preach, to have authority. And you know, the thing is, is that you don't have to read the word very far. But I'll I'll give you a a spoiler on this. You read the end, you know, toward the end of it. Philippians chapter 3, and Paul says, let those of us who are mature be thus minded. So this is really for all of us. Now, today my challenge is simply this. Um, I One mistake, I, I've got an ocean of text. I will just tell you that. I have an ocean of text. John preaches for, I don't know what, 35, 40 minutes on one verse. I have enough text here for like, seven different sermons, and I made a mistake this week. I meant to tell Liz to put in the bulletin or, or put out online that everyone should bring a lunch today. And here's the good news. The good news is that I don't think the Texans play until like 3 o'clock. So I'm going to get you out of here by 3, right? No, I'm going to actually... And, and it's okay. It's okay if I if I kind of um, summarize this stuff, because I think Jesus summarized the two. What Jesus was trying to do was simply orient the guys. It's like, you've come here now, and you want to know what it's like to follow me. I'm going to tell you what it's like to follow me. But like Bob Logan says, um, the orientation uh, is really important. So uh, what Logan says is this. He says, in the Western world, this is what we do. We orient, and then we train, and then we involve. He said there's only two problems with that. One, it isn't biblical, and two, it doesn't work. What Jesus did was he oriented his guys, and he then involved them, and in the next year and a half after the Sermon on the Mount, they're going to see this in action. Some of the stuff that we talk about today, they're going to feel the emotion of all of this. And wouldn't you know it, the great thing is they're able to come back every night, and sit down at the Lord's feet and say, well, hey, what about that? And the punchline of this sermon is, we have that benefit too. But we'll go through this part of the orientation and then we'll talk about it. I think what Jesus is talking with uh, the disciples about today that we're going to look at, this part of the Sermon on the Mount, is the difference between religion and having a life lived with Him and keeping in mind the reality of life, what is our condition? I mean, always having to remember that. And I wrote that word mercy up there because, again, I think this is part of the punchline of what Jesus is saying. Because he, there, there was one place just before this where where the the Pharisees came after Jesus when he called Matthew, and Jesus says to him, He says, "Look, I did not call, come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." Go out and figure out what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not necessarily what you think is religion. The, the code and following these commandments of rules. I desire mercy. And at another place where they confronted the, uh, Jesus about his disciples' behavior, he says, if you had known what this meant... I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So what we're going to do as we go through this is I am really going to skim the top of these things. But hopefully it will be understandable what the Lord is trying to tell us about what this means to follow him and follow him closely. So if you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to start reading in verse 17. He says to them, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now wait a minute. I thought coming to Christianity meant now it's freedom, right? Freedom from the law and freedom from... From all that stuff. Now, as we understand the law, and we understand it used wrongly, uh, when people think that by going to church every Sunday and doing this set of rules, that somehow that will make you righteous before God, that is absolutely wrong. We are free from that. But the law is still very important because in the law that God... And we're, we're not talking about the ceremonial law. If you were to ask the question right now, well, what laws are uh, will Jesus be talking about here, you're going to see that these are pretty much the Ten Commandments. So moral laws. The moral laws still hold. The fact is, we could not possibly have become righteous before God by obeying Him because there's something wrong with us. And that's what the law was there for. The law, Paul says, was like a mirror. Or James says, was like a mirror. Well, a mirror is great for seeing what's on your face, but you can't wash your face with a mirror. If you do, you'll hurt yourself. But the idea that Jesus is telling them is just because you've come to me now doesn't mean that there is some kind of holy free-for-all that's going to take place now. You know, just because you become a Christian does not mean you can now glide through stop signs, drive on sidewalks, and do stuff like that. So, he's telling them that the law and the prophets are still very important. Now, the one thing about the prophets that I'm going to throw out here is that the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So, what about, what about the prophets in all of this? Now, there will always come up the discussion, well, what about Israel? I mean, is Israel going to miss the boat right now? And the short answer is, everything that God promised to Israel will be fulfilled because it is based on the, the covenant with Abraham. It is based on the covenant with David. Both of these covenants were unconditional covenants. So, preaching the law, preaching the prophets in the right way is still going to be very important. So, Jesus goes on and he says this, In verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's not going to get them kicked out. But he is not representing things correctly. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this would have blown their minds, right? This would have blown their minds. They would have thought, wait a minute, the scribes and the Pharisees, like these are the, the best of the best of the best, with honor, sir. You know, they're the ones who really are righteous before God. And, and Jesus says, No, you've got to think about this completely differently. What it means to live before God, what it means to live uh righteously. Before God. Okay, the righteousness obviously comes through Jesus Christ, but then once you're united to Jesus Christ, how do you live that? Is it just by a list of rules? And see, this is where we as believers get into trouble. Right? Because we like to slide back to the list of rules. Well, I did this. Well, I I, I did that. I gave that much money. And so, you know, I, I guess I must be doing okay. And Jesus is about to blow all of that to smithereens which is a good thing. So, character, as John has been talking about, still needs to be taught. Being truthful still needs to be taught. J.R. has been going through the, um, uh, uh, the armor of God with the teens. Truthfulness still needs to be taught. Righteousness still needs to be taught. And we need to do that. And we need to do that in a mature way. And also the prophets, they need to be taught too, because Jesus mentions this, that you if, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What about the kingdom of heaven? That is hope, and that is life. And anybody who's read Isaiah, and then they've read Jeremiah, you don't know what to do with those books unless you know that there's a coming millennial kingdom. And wait till Ezekiel, because Ezekiel actually talks about a day in the life in the millennial kingdom. And for years, because that kind of teaching was subjugated because of the Roman church, Europe lived in darkness. That was, prob- that was part of the dark ages. And the guys who, I don't know what happened there, but the guys who finally understood that the millennial kingdom was coming and everything, These guys were preaching that over 100 years before Israel became a nation. So they were way out on a limb. Anyway, this stuff needs to be taught. And Jesus says, if you hold to it, if you teach it, if you teach it to others, you'll be great in the kingdom. As the kingdom exists right now, you're going to be doing my work. You're standing with me. You're being strong. So now, he goes on to some very important things. Talk about reorientation here. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. You know, part of Laura's testimony is so interesting. Um, Before she was a believer, she got hired at a Baptist um, school to teach. And they asked her, Are you a believer? And when Laura tells her, gives her testimony, she always says, Well, you know, I thought to myself, I I grew up in the Methodist church and I've never murdered anybody. Of course I'm a Christian. You know, being born again is what any religious person should do. I'm guessing we don't have any murderers here, right? And if if you are, take that up with John. He has special degrees in how to deal with that. So Jesus says, You have heard that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable for judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And I, we don't feel it, but as the guys are sitting there listening to this, they're shocked. They are shocked by this. You mean my attitude is that important? They're shocked. My attitude is that important. But Jesus goes on, and he says... Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. The Sanhedrin, well, what we know about the Sanhedrin, these 70 guys, is they put Jesus to death. They made sure Stephen got promoted early. If you got called in front of the Sanhedrin for doing something awful, you could get the death penalty. And he goes on and he says... And whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. The Greek word there is Gehenna. It is, uh, a lot of people believe, you know, reading the commentators, that Jesus used this for shock value. Because in the old days, Gehenna, the, the Valley of Hinnon, was an ongoing, perpetually burning garbage dump. That's where you scraped old animals to, so hopefully they would burn. That's where they had the Temple of Moloch set up, so that would burn. It was always burning. And Jesus is saying here, and and this is the short version here, the way you deal with other people is very, very important. So, don't rest on your laurels the fact that you're, you're kind of a squeaky clean religious person and you've never killed anybody. What are your attitudes? And, and this is how this is bound up. What are we supposed to be doing on earth? Who are we? What is our condition on this earth, right? We were lost people who should have been put to death, right? That would have happened without Jesus. There is something within me, within every one of us, that is spiritually incurable. Its power has been broken. You have been given a new spiritual life so that when you go into the resurrection body, the new life goes into the body, the other thing is put to death. Were it not for that new life, resurrection would not look very good for us because the new life goes into that resurrected body. For an unbeliever, not such a happy experience. The old life goes into that resurrection body and they are punished eternally. We're not better than anybody else. Read Romans chapter 7. I believe that is real time Paul saying, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will save me from this thing that I can barely control? And then you get into chapter 8, and that's where the Holy Spirit takes center stage. If it were not for the fact that the Holy Spirit is within us, and we can follow Him every single day, we would be toast we would have there would be no way we can challenge that sickness within us. So I think what Jesus is saying here is just simply this. Who makes you better than anyone else? What right do you have to be angry with anybody? Or insult them or call them a fool? And we do. And we do. How many times have I heard because I it's such a cute thing, right? Have I heard from a Christian, you know what? Jesus may love you, but there ain't no cure for stupid. Right? I mean, that's like, that makes a great bumper sticker. You know what? I don't know that God laughs at that one. It's not funny. It's just not funny. So Jesus goes on and he, you know, just to, just to be really quick about this too, is that if you read uh, the Lord's Prayer. There's a whole section also built into the Lord's Prayer regarding our relationships, right? And so, Jesus goes on here and He says, So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That's how important it is. Don't think because you're not a murderer... That you can be, you know, everything between us is going to be okay if you are hurting other people. God looks upon the heart. And Jesus is is telling these guys, you have to be merciful to other people. You have to take care for your relationships. And then it says, make friends quickly with your accuser when you're going with him to the court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is using extreme illustrations here to shock the boys. Men, if you have awful relationships with your wife, it will hinder your prayer life. It will paralyze you spiritually from having any effect That is good for Jesus Christ. Don't do it. I read some missionary biographies, and I want to cry at the end of them. Because some of these guys, when it came to their home life, were just like completely off the charts. Not anybody you would want to emulate. So Jesus is saying here, your relationships, guys... You need to think it in terms not of religion, but of your relationship to me. And you need to understand who you are and have a heart of compassion and a heart of mercy for everybody around you. For the the, the, the older senior citizen who just pulled out in front of you and apparently doesn't know that the speed limit is 35 miles an hour on Austin Parkway. They want to go 20 have a good heart about that. Verse 27. Oh, that Jesus threw this one in here. This is just nuclear. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, I, I always love this, The you know, counseling guys, and they go, well, you know, I may not be perfect, but you know what? I ain't never stepped out on her. I, I I bring the money home every week, you know, and I even cut the lawn. And 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 yes, yeah, so a lot of people do that guy. And we think that because we obey some rule, we've never technically committed adultery. We're okay. And Jesus goes right to the heart issue on this. See, because the Pharisees could say they hadn't committed adultery. They thought... And then Jesus uses this weird example here, and again, He is not asking anyone to do this. I just wanna, I just wanna tell you before I read it, okay? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. He's not telling anybody to, Cut off a part of your body. What he's saying is, stop it, stop it. You live before God; He really owns your heart. You're going to live by some silly rule and say, "Well, I ain't never cross over that line, but you cross over every other one." I think the modern version of this is: throw your computer away, throw your iPhone away, stop talking to that girl at the office. And you realize here that this is being put on the guys, right? See, because I think the first line of defense is always the guy. And when the guy is falling apart, you know, but we have our private lives, and nobody can see, but God can see. God can see. You know, back in the early 2000s, I think this was like 2001, 2002, Focus on the Family opened a hotline for pastors. And within a few months, they started, I mean, they, they were getting plenty of calls and everything. And one of the statistics they came up with was 60% of the pastors who were calling them were struggling with pornography. And I'll just say this, not not for any other way than I believe it's a guy's responsibility, stop it. And do what you need to do to keep your marriage alive. You know, we just don't take this stuff seriously at all. We're, We're still like little babies. I mean, like in Hebrews it was talking about this week, about, you know, I should be able to talk to you about this stuff, but we're still going back to the rudimentary stuff of Jesus died on the cross for your sin, you're no longer under the law, blah, blah, blah. It's that... So, what is the marriage relationship? What is sex all about? It has something to do with completion. You know? So, Jesus hits this issue, and he rolls from there into verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let her give her a certificate of divorce. He's still talking about adultery right here. And he says, but I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, on, except on the ground of a." of sexual immorality in which she has already made herself an adulteress. Everyone who divorces his wife makes her an adulteress. Why? Oh, see, again, religiously, we have the certificate of divorce and everything's okay. You know, if we get this, that's not how God looks at it. You can't tell how God, tell God how to look at things. He said what Jesus said to them and what they are no longer two, but are one flesh, and what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. God looks upon them as one. Now, the covenant can be broken, and He allowed for a certificate of divorce, but Jesus says that was only because of your hardness of heart. That was only because I built this need for completion in you. It was only because you are unrestrained in this, and so I had to, God had to allow because of your hardness of heart that you could be divorced. And he goes on, and this is what got the Pharisees here. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Because the Pharisees had manipulated the rules so much that they could excuse divorce for almost any reason. And a lot of these guys were marrying divorced women because, well, for whatever reason. It's still dealing with our relationships. It's dealing with a huge issue. And I can't think of anything, if you're a disciple, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, I can't think of anything that will hamstring you more than your relationship to other people, your relationship to your spouse, how you deal with this constant saturation in our society regarding sexuality. It's just something we got to deal with. Jesus goes on from there. And he says, don't swear, but he's talking about oaths. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven. You know, and and we do this, right? It's like, God, if you give me this job, I promise I'm going to read the Bible every day. Oh, no, don't ever say that. Because you're not going to do it. (laughs) You know? I mean, we get emotional, right? You leave a worship service and you're emotional. Now I'm gonna live for you. I'm not watching TV ever again for the kingdom of God. Until the Texans come on. And then, well, I'm just gonna check, see what scores. You know? Oh, Jesus, you know, see the thing is, it was kind of a religious thing, and it isn't just for the Jews, we do it too. And what Jesus is saying here is just, Be honest before God. Just live simply before Him. He goes on and He says, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is His footstool. He owns them. For by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. It's the city of the great King. It wasn't back then, but it's going to be in the future, folks. And don't swear by your head Fear you are not able to make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So just to live honestly before God. Just do it. Make it simple. You and God know what your battles are. You and Jesus know where you need to grow. Work on those baby steps and when you fall down, you know you what's know appropriate to do, right? You get back up. And you keep going. But, you know, I think so many times these oaths are for other people. These oaths are for how we expect people to look at us, that we're really serious about something. Jesus is saying to these disciples in their orientation, stop it. Don't do that. Let's just be real about this. And then, in verse 36, this is pretty much going to go to the end. Or verse 38, rather. This is a big one. Now, now I'm just going to preface it all in saying this. Um, This is where the Sermon on the Mount looks very otherworldly. Like, really? I mean, who could possibly do this? What's interesting is this is the only place in this, this whole section where Matthew and Luke come together and, because Luke leaves this, uh, the other the other things out, but he includes this, and I think more than any other thing, this is the test of how we understand our life on earth. We understand who we are, we understand why we're here, and are we really willing to grow in Jesus Christ? Because this really separates the men from the boys and the girls from the women. Are we willing to live holy? For Jesus Christ, utterly sacrificial. You know, when Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, deny yourself doesn't mean, well, I want that piece of cake. It could mean that. But but what it really means is deny the way you feel. Deny the the, the emptiness, deny the, the, the vulnerability, deny all of these things for the sake of being able to take this next step and do what I want you to do. Because the thing he says after that is then you take up your death, your cross, and you follow me. And that among disciples is still a rare thing. So, as Jesus talks about this, all of these paragraphs flow together. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, I always feel like I'm obligated to explain to teens, this is not somebody with a baseball bat. You're allowed to duck if there's a baseball bat. Or if there's a gun or a bow and arrow or something like this. The slap was usually... An extreme insult, you know, kind of like what we see in the night movies, you know, where the the you know some French poodly guy will take a uh, you know a glove and slap the other person in the face, you know. Your croissant was too tough, or whatever, like that. Um, no. he says if you get if you get offended like this, slapped like this, turn the other cheek. Really, really? oh man, I got too many comebacks. I grew up in Milwaukee. I'm coming at you, man. You do something like that and I will make sure that I get my dig in there. Uh, and then he goes on. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, go and talk to Jr. right away. Or Roy. Where, where's Roy? Yeah. Yeah. No. If anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. The Roman soldiers had the right to enlist you on the spot. And Jesus says, just go with them too. Two miles. Give to him who begs from you, um, and do not refuse one who would borrow from you. Now, doesn't that seem otherworldly? Really? Now, here's the thing. Is God with you or is he not with you? Every day of your life. Are you enlisted in the army of Jesus Christ? Does he have the sovereign right to bring you into an intersection like this? You know, we talk so much about our rights in the Western world, but I think if you're in China, you know, communist China, I really think that that rights kind of get interpreted differently, you know? And if you're in a place that's really oppressive, and you've got a mayor in your town who is really godless... I think you you don't go and protest very much. You might get run over by a tank or get killed or something like that. And the idea is, do we really believe God is involved in our lives? Can he really do this stuff to us? And Jesus rolls very naturally into the next thing. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy and... Uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, and obviously that isn't correct, right? Love your neighbor is there. But the Jews made the correlation, well, if you love your neighbor, you ought to hate your enemy. And Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Just the fact that he says that is hard enough, right? Any of us who have really had an enemy, oh, there is no way. I mean, you, there are probably people in your family you don't want to talk with, Right? And it's—I mean, not at home. I mean, this group, but you know, your extended family back in Nebraska or someplace or, or, or Iowa. Ohio is a place for a lot of bad family people, anyway. Trying to dig my way out of that one with my mouth, anyway. Um, that so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Wow. God gives us the opportunity to be sons of our Father who is in heaven. For He makes a sunrise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That we have that opportunity, but see, that's what Jesus is saying. You're going to need to be able to do this. I think this would be like taking a bunch of recruits and having... an uh, you know an f sixteen or something fly overhead and do a barrel roll and say, "Guys you'll be up there doing that and they're going i don 't think so <laughs> you know you you expect me to be up there and do that thing i don 't think so. I think this is kind of what they 're feeling right now. How in the world do we do that? What kind of heart and mindset do we have to have to do this and so Jesus rolls on here. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward is that? What reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And I'm going to fly over to Luke real quick because he picks up on this. This You know, let let me just say this. It's kind of a challenge when when you try to put these verses together because I really think that this happened at the same time. What Luke says here is significantly, it's the same, but significantly different. And I almost get the feeling, I mean, you know, I'm getting all this out of Pentecost book, but I almost get the feeling like Jesus is looking at this. He's looking at his disciples and watching them cringe and say, I don't think we could ever possibly do that. No retaliation Just simply be open to God. And when he says, I should give up my, or I should turn the other cheek, I'm going to do that? What is happening here? They don't understand a lot of things. So anyway, in Luke, it looks as if Jesus takes a pause and he says, but I I say to you who hear, and this is in uh, 627, love your enemies. Well, love your enemies being explained as do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To anyone who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. And from him who takes away your cloak, it's not talking about a lawsuit. It almost looks like a mugging, which I think was part of the lawsuit that um, Matthew was talking about. Uh, to him who would take away your goods um, or your tunic or your, ah, your cloak, I'm sorry. Do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And Jesus says basically the same thing again, except again in different words. So if you only love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Sinners do the same. Sinners is kind of a broadening of that tax collector issue. Uh, included a lot of other people. And at the end in verse 36, he says, But love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And again, it comes back to this whole thing of Mercy. Why would we show mercy to other people? Because it is part and parcel of what we've experienced in Jesus Christ. We didn't deserve mercy, but we have received mercy. And those people out there receive mercy. And who who does God say they should receive mercy from now? From us, who have received it. And Jesus is actually the great example of all of that. He did not have to go to the cross. He did not have to endure everything he endured from puny mankind. But he did for us. And the disciple, when he is fully taught, should be like his master. Do people do this kind of stuff? Sure. Uh, You know, if you've seen the movie The Hiding Place, there's this one scene in which... um, Betsy Tenboom has just had her head doused in DDT because that's how they took care of the lice in the, uh, the um, concentration camp where they were. And so she gets her head doused in, with DDT and she's standing back against uh, one of these huts and um, there's a German guard next to her. And she, she looks up at the sky and she says to the German guard, isn't it a beautiful day? And the German guard looks at her like, have you forgotten where you are? I mean you're in a you're in a concentration camp. You're about to die. And she stands next to this guard and she says, isn't it a beautiful day? Because she still had God with her and she's cheering up this guard. Uh Richard Wurmbrand, uh he's talking about in in his book Tortured for Christ, he's talking about how they were beaten by the guards. I mean, mercilessly. The guards would 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 light up like branding irons, you know, like pokers. And they would actually make holes in their bodies. I mean, it's just like awful when you read the book. But they would get together as believers and they would say, we need to show love to our captors. They had to put this in practice. And they were encouraging and strengthening one another as disciples to do this. And wouldn't you know it? It's, it's almost kind of like an ironic way of getting even, one of the worst guards came to Christ. And guess what happened? He wound up being tortured for Christ too. Have you ever thought about the fact that when Jesus was up on the cross, he did not say a word, and yet two people were led to Christ? I wish I had that record, you know? He didn't say a word up there, except, you know, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But the centurion seems to have come to Christ and the guy next to him hanging on the cross. Peter Brown, a friend of mine from Noy-Bied, um Mennonite Brethren guy from the Ukraine, um, he's telling me the story of a Russian guard, uh, no, a Russian soldier in Siberia. I used to be impressed with Siberia, like, wow, in Siberia. Siberia is like most of Russia. Up at the top, you know, it's like where nobody wants to live. Sort of like our version of Canada, you know. Except that's full of mean people. Canada's just full of mean beavers and things like that. And so, hey, eh? anyway. So they got this guy and they cornered him because he was a believer. And they tried to get him to swear and take an oath. And he, they beat the daylights out of him. And Peter... Peter was not a believer. He was standing there watching this happen. He kept thinking in his mind, Just lie. What is wrong with you? Just lie. And you'll be okay. And this guy was beaten to within an inch of his life. And Peter said to himself, You know what? What would possess a man... To be willing to do that, it must be important. I'd better check it out. And that's what led him to Jesus Christ. This stuff is really important in the world that we live in. Now, what do, you, what do we really need to do this? I'm going to tell you what we need. We need somebody, we need to be with somebody who can teach us, who is stronger, right? Right? That's what we need. I mean for all of this for we'll never be able to accomplish this. Even Paul said at the end of Philippians chapter three or in the middle, you know he couldn't do it. He was trying to do it, but he couldn't do it. But see that's what being a disciple is all about. A disciple is somebody who learns directly from Jesus, and I think they learn every day. And we sit with Him at His feet, and He shows us what is happening in relationships around us. And when we fall and we scrape our knees, we get back up. But He is strong. He is stronger. He is the perfect disciple-maker. And He calls us not to perfection, because we'll never get there. And He doesn't call us to disappointment. And He doesn't call us to some, some... Life that has no punchline. But as we follow Him, as we get involved in the lives of other people, He starts to knit us together and He takes these obscure verses that we never even think about. We're reading them you know, through the Bible and all of a sudden, He applies it to our heart. And we think, yeah, that's what I need. When I get in that situation, I'm going to use that verse. I'm going to use that thought. I need to praise Him. I need to lift Him up. Whatever it is. So is this impossible? Yeah, it would be. Except for Jesus. There's a song that was written by Reuben Morgan and Ben Fielding called Stronger. There is love that came for us, humbled to a sinner's cross, broke my shame and sinfulness, rose again victorious. Faithfulness none can deny through the storm and through the fire. There is truth that sets me free. It's Jesus Christ who lives in me. And He is stronger. He is stronger. And He's the one that we live with every day who makes makes us able to follow Him and do this. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You. So often, religion is of our own making, something that we can control. Um Uh, a list of rules that we can check off and say that we're okay. Living with you is a much more adventurous thing. But it isn't that we are called to perfection, we are called to our Savior. We are called to the one who died for us. When he reaches out to us, he's reaching out with nail-pierced hands. In Hebrews, it says that he understands our condition. Because he lived the life, he was taught discipline through suffering, just like us. He can be compassionate, but we need to be honest. We need to make sure that we aren't just sort of writing the rules and thinking that by our Sunday attendance we're okay. He has called us into a battlefield. He is our captain of salvation. He is the one who leads us on and as we follow him, as we dare to be like him, he uses us so that our lives are fruitful and he teaches us. He teaches us how to do the barrel rolls and he teaches us how to love our neighbor and love our enemy. And to be kind to those who abuse us. He teaches us to have a different perspective on life. The important perspective on life. He makes this life of value. He makes this life a joy because we know why we're here. And we know what the stakes are. And the people that we're reaching out to are going to go to hell. Unless something happens. Unless something gets in their way. And we're the ones who used to get in the way. And that is worth it. That is totally worth it. I'm glad people got in my way. I'm glad my uncle never gave up praying for me. I'm glad that there were people who were willing to challenge me on stuff about Jesus and make me think. Not that I respected them, but as it turns out, I needed that. And who knows what they had to go through, what price they had to pay. But this is why we've been called. This is the life of adventure. This is what makes it worth it. And we just thank you for that. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ who is sitting at the right your right hand he has had victory he has won everything and now he ministers to us as we bow our hearts before him in his word and his holy spirit speaks to us we just thank you for this in jesus name amen